you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. We've been in Job the last two weeks. We're going to be in Job this week and then next week. So the first week, we kind of saw how the scene was set. We saw the meaningless feeling of nature of suffering, while at the same time being able to see the providential superintending. Last week, we saw the response of Job's friends. This week, we're going to learn from Job himself. Job chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 11, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 11, this is Job talking. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold or filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, any person who has lived long enough can identify there with the words that Job writes through such pain, through tears, through suffering. Lord, I pray this morning that you would use Job's lament as medicine to our own souls to enliven the gospel in our minds and in our hearts to substantiate our Hope in the person of Christ. I pray this morning if there are people who even now are carrying forward grief, that you would minister to them in the midst of their grief. I pray if there are people that are headed toward grief, that you would prepare their souls and prepare their minds and prepare their hearts for the hardship that is ahead. I pray if there are people that have bottled up the pain of the past, that today you would open the bottle, that you would minister to them through the word and the Holy Spirit. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't remember a lot about being six years old. I'm probably guessing that you don't either, unless some of you are some child prodigy of some sort. But one thing that I do remember is I remember learning how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. I remember my dad teaching me. I remember us going and uh, that feeling in your heart and the nervousness that you have. You want to be able to do it, but you're kind of terrified that you can't do it. And you ask your dad to allow you. And then when he allows you, you kind of regret your decision. And you kind of regret that you, you pushed him to do it. 
And so I, I remember there on the old Murray and my dad there at the top of the hill. And we lived on top of a mountain. Learning to ride a bicycle at my house was not like run, learning to ride a bicycle in a parking lot. Okay, we lived on the side of a bluff. If you've been to my parents' house, you know. And so we're there, and I can remember my dad holding on and, and, and giving me all of the instructions and telling me what to expect and, and pushing me. And I can remember that feeling that you get when you look back and you realize he's not holding on anymore, and I'm doing it. I'm really doing it, you know? Like, and, and then, of course, you crash, right? Well, I, I, what I remember from that day is I remember riding it and wrecking it and riding it and wrecking it. And for the most part, the wrecks, they just aren't that bad. But there's something that you need to know about me. There are two things that I really, really hate. I hate to hurt, which is irony because I seem to get hurt a lot. And I hate to fail. And, and I remember that day when I was six years old, those two realities, those two great hatreds in my life crisscrossing. I'd ridden and wrecked and ridden and wrecked, but then there was the great crash. The crash, you hit the tree and you go end over end and you know the one, your, your elbows are bleeding and your knees are bleeding and your head is hurting. I'm pretty sure we didn't wear helmets then. I, I, don't, I don't remember much about a helmet. It's lucky I remember the event at all, isn't it? And I, and I remember the, the pep talk that my dad gave me because this is what dads do, right? Son, this is part of it. You're going to wreck. You're going to wreck some more in the future. You're going to continue to wreck, but it's, you're going to get better with time. It's going to get better. And, and this, really, this is your ticket of freedom in Rabbit Town, Alabama, right? Like this bicycle, this is your ticket of freedom down Red Road 55. But I was unpersuaded. So I took the Murray and I took it to the back corner of the carport and I let it die, you know? Like, I just let it stay there. I am not riding that anymore. I'm over. And for months, it did not move. I've never been very good at failing. And my suspicion is, is that many of you probably feel the same way. That failure, though it is an inevitability in life, is not something that many of us are well trained in especially, especially if you're my age and younger. If you're millennial and Gen Z, we have enough participation trophies and ribbons that we could wallpaper all of Calhoun County. We've been trained in how to succeed at life. We've been trained every time there was a deficiency in math, we had a math tutor. If there was a deficiency in chemistry, we had a chemistry tutor. If there was a, a deficiency in the ACT, we had an ACT tutor. If there was a deficiency athletically, we had golf lessons or we had gymnastics or we had whatever. There were always tutors that could come in and train us on how we could succeed. But I fear that many of us never learned how to fail. Many of us never learned how to suffer and the ironic truth is, is that if you want to be able to flourish and succeed as a human being in a world that is filled with brokenness, then the ability to cope with failure and the ability to fail and to suffer is almost more important than the ability to succeed. That if you want to be able to flourish and live as a vital person, you have to be able to cope with the disappointments that come with the discouragements that come, with being knocked off the Murray bicycle and getting back on a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. 
I think whenever we read the Bible, it's always important for us to ask, what is the pastoral purpose of this book? Or what is the pastoral purpose of this passage? And what I mean by that is, what is it that God is trying to train in our hearts to move us closer to who he's designed us to be? To move us closer to his redemptive purposes. To move us closer to what he wants to see revealed and unveiled in our lives. And I think one of the primary pastoral purposes of the book of Job is to teach us how to fail to teach us how to suffer, to teach us how to face the inevitability of disappointment and how in suffering to suffer to the glory of God. Did you know there was such a thing? I think that's what Job is teaching us. Job is teaching us is that there is a way that we can suffer and there is a way that we can encounter loss and experience grief and do so that enables and prepares us to flourish according to the design of God and ultimately through the inevitability of these hardships and the disappointments in our lives and the losses in our lives to ultimately bring glory to God and bring praise to God and to worship him through the darkest nights of our soul. And so I want us to look at that in Job. The first thing I want us to see is, and how we suffer to the glory of God is I want us to see that you must allow yourself to grieve. You must allow yourself to grieve. You know, time is a paradox. Time is, on one hand, a great gift from God. It is great kindness from God. It enables you to watch children grow up. It enables you to, to grow old with a spouse. It enables you to see the, the intricacies of the way the Lord has designed his creation and to see all of its beauties and its manifest glory. But time is not just a blessing. Time is a curse, isn't it? Because if you live long enough on this earth, if your time goes on enough, you will know suffering and you will know it profoundly. You will know it deeply. You will know loss and disappointment. You will know what it means to have a, a goal go unfulfilled, to have a dream dash, to have someone that you love step out into eternity before you were ready for them to go. You'll know what it's like to suffer. Eric Clapton wrote a song shortly after the death of his young son about this reality of time. And he said this, he says, Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knees. Time can break your heart. Have you begging, please? I wonder if there's some of you this morning that can identify with those words. Job certainly could. That's what we see there in Job chapter 3. Many have called Job chapter 3 one of the most difficult and painful chapters in all of the Bible. If not the single most painful chapter in all of the Bible. As Job is there left grappling in the immediate aftermath of the loss of his family. And the loss of his wealth. And the loss of his, of his good name in the community. He goes and he begins to process this grief. And we, I think, in the process, learn how we can process our own grief in a way that brings glory to the Lord and that, in fact, ministers to our own souls. We learn a lot about the nature of grief, I think. I think the first thing that we see there is that grieving is feeling. Grieving is feeling. Now, we're having difficulties with our pencil up here, so I'm going to make attempts to draw here with my, my finger, but it may be crude, so y'all, y'all stay with me. But one of the things that stands out in Job's lament here in chapter 3 is that there is language of great feeling, of great emotion, of, of, of the realization of the heaviness of what he's facing in his life. Look at there in verse 20. He says, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death? That's feeling, isn't it? It comes and dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. 
Why is it light given to a man whose way is hidden? The, 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 when he's saying hidden there, what he's ultimately saying is he's saying someone that's forgotten by God. So, so, someone who's now overlooking, overlooked by God. That in the kindness of God, in the provision of God, in the bounty of God, this is a person who says, I have been abandoned by him. It appears as though God can't see me. And he says, this is, this is an interesting word, hedged in. Do you remember back in Job chapter 1, we're supposed to make this connection in our minds. Back in Job chapter 1, do you remember what the charge was that Satan made against God by using Job as an example? He says, of course Job loves you. What's not to love? You have built a hedge around him. That's a military term. So what he's talking about there is he's saying that what God had done essentially was place a protecting, defending army, forces around Job to defend Job so that nothing could come against him. What does Job say in chapter 3, though? He says, it feels like the very forces that were once protecting me have now turned against me. It feels like I'm the one under ambush, and I'm the one that's under attack. There's great emotion in what Job is feeling, isn't there? He's expressing to us the, the nature of the weight and the pain that's, that's in his soul. He, he, he says earlier, he, he says, well, I, I, I can't even begin to articulate the fullness of the pain that's in my bones. My worst, my worst nightmares have become my reality. It's very different than the way I see us commonly relating to grief. Many of us, we deal with the abandonment of our father or the inability to please our mother or the loss of our dreams or the miscarriage of our child or the, or the failure of us to rise up the, the corporate ladder the way that we believe that we ought to ascend. And we process all of that by trying to escape it, by trying to pretend like it's not there. By, by, by escaping into a world that's a fantasy, like the world of pornography. By, by, by seeking to, to go and, and find at the bottom of a bottle some way to, to not look at it and to not think about it and to not feel it. Some people do it by working an extra 20 hours a week or picking up a second job so they don't have to face the realities of home. Some people try and they run from one relationship to the other relationship to another relationship, but all of it is nothing more than an attempt to escape the grief, to escape what actually is, what's hunting them down like a stalker in the night. You see, escapism, it makes you a fugitive. It makes you a fugitive. You always have to try to take one, stay one step ahead of the pain that you know is there. One step ahead of the, of, the, of the pain that you know if you stop long enough, if you're still long enough, if you're quiet long enough, if you're sober long enough, then you'll feel it. And so you, you stay on the run and you run from one person to the next person, from one computer to the next computer, from one activity to the next activity, from one neighborhood to the next neighborhood, from, from one job to the next job, trying to stay one step ahead of the grief. But you know what fugitives find out? Fugitives find out that very often being on the run is worse than being in the prison to begin with. That it's exhausting. That it cripples and paralyzes the soul. That it prevents you from actually being able to live your life. I wonder if there are some here this morning that are on the run. I wonder if you've been on the run ever since you were a little boy or a little girl. Ever since you wanted the approval of your dad and you didn't get it. Ever since you wanted the acceptance of your friends and didn't receive it. Ever since you were married and it ended so much quicker than you could have ever imagined. 
Ever since your, your health went away and never recovered, you've been on the run trying not to feel it, trying not to face it, trying not to deal with it. I wonder if this morning you'd just be honest enough to say, I'm tired. I'm tired of running. I'm, trying, I'm tired of trying to escape it. I'm tired of trying to pretend like it's not there. I'm ready. I'm ready this morning to face it and to feel it. The reality of grief is you must face it. You must face it. You must feel its pain. You must feel its sting. You must allow its darkness to come and to infiltrate your bones. It's not all we see about grief, though. We see also that, grief is question, that grieving is questioning. I don't know my cord here is running away on me. Grieving is questioning. If you read the, those 15 verses that we read to begin with, from verse 11 to verse 26, what you see is that ESV actually puts the, the word why on the lips of Job six different times. We see it here. Once there in verse 20, why is, whoa, why is light given to him who is in misery? And then you see it again there in verse 23. Why is light, light given to a man whose way is hidden? That is that, that one of the things that grief does is grief brings onto our minds, brings to the forefront the biggest questions in life. It brings to the forefront the most difficult questions in life. The, the, these questions that, that cause us to lay awake at night and, and want the answers to. The, the kinds of questions that when your soul gets still and the house gets quiet and you're left with nothing but your thoughts there in the rocking chair on the back porch. The kinds of questions that come to your mind. That when you bury a child, the question is why? When you bury a parent much sooner than you expected, the question is why? When you lose your job and you didn't expect it, the question is why? Why did this happen? And I think it's important that we recognize that grief demands that we ask these questions. Grief demands that we ask these questions. Not only does grief demand that we ask these questions, but faith demands that we ask these questions. Is that confusing to you? Did you expect that? I think very often when we think about asking the big questions of God, the way that Job is asking, and this is what Job is asking, God, why did you let me be born? If all I was going to know was this kind of loss and this kind of pain and this kind of difficulty in my life, why did you even let me be born? Why did you let me be born into a world where I would have more tears than I would have bread to eat? Those are real questions, aren't they? And I think very often when we begin to have those questions bubbling up in our minds that the impulse for us is to become afraid and to push those questions back in because we fear that those questions will lead us to a place of unbelief. But I'm here to tell you that I am convinced that the deep, deep, difficult, and hard questions of life are themselves an expression of faith. Let me ask you, when an atheist uh, suffers... When an atheist loses a child, when an atheist loses uh, their purpose in life or their grandest ambition, who can they ask? To whom do they go with questions? What is the response to their questions? The response can only be that it's random. The response can only be that it's meaningless. The response can only be that it's aimless. The naturalist, to whom does he go? To whom does she go when she has questions? The answer can only be that this is a process of natural selection, which is weeding out the, the weak from the strong. And maybe, maybe, maybe because of your suffering, because of your grief, because of the hardship that you're facing, you're in fact the weak and not the strong. There's not much comfort there, is it? The only people that can ask the real questions in life 
are people of faith. People who trust that there is an almighty who is sovereign and good and ordering the world and bringing about his grand purposes in spite of the limited perspective that we have here on earth. That our faith necessitates that we ask these big questions. In fact, in fact, I believe that there is no greater contributor to the deconstruction of a faith than the inability or unwillingness to ask those questions. I think moms and dads, you ought to cultivate in your house the kind of environment where the big questions of life can be asked, where the big questions of faith can be asked because a faith that cannot be questioned, a God that cannot be questioned is a God and a faith that is insecure, superficial, and shallow. Oh, but brothers and sisters, that is not our faith. And that is not our God. Our God invites our questions. It invites in the darkness of our soul and the grief of the moment for us to take our why and to bring it before the Lord in faith and say, Lord, I cannot see. And Lord, I do not understand. And Lord, frankly, I do not like it. But Lord, here's the question. Why? Why did my little girl go home with the Lord? Why does my wife have dementia? Why has my life not turned out the way all of my friends' lives have turned out? Why, oh God, help me to understand because I'm bringing it to you knowing that the most difficult questions in life bring to us the deepest answers and the deepest truths into our hearts. And so this morning, I wonder if you have questions that you've been suppressing and questions that you've been packing down and, and pushing down. That this morning, if you would have enough faith to bring them before the Lord and just ask them, to just ask them. We're going to talk more about how the Lord answers questions next week. But for this week, what I want you to see is that you can bring those to the Lord and ask him. So this morning, we see that grieving is feeling and grieving is questioning. And finally, that grieving is expressing. That grieving is expressing. What we have in... uh, And Job chapter 3 is a particular genre of poetic literature known as a lament. So we have here, and he's writing out a lament. And what a lament is, is a lament is a a willingness to express the pain of grief as you see it, as it seems to be, as it appears to be, as it feels. So in other words, when you come into a, a time of lament, you're not saying from the perspective of God, this is necessarily how it is. You're trusting in some sense that God sees it and God is in control of it and his providence is encompassing it and it's heading somewhere meaningful. What you're giving is your perspective of it, how it seems and feels to you. Did you know that's okay? Did you know that's okay? That that it's okay for you to look and say, God, from my limited vantage point, God, from my perspective, it looks like my life is meaningless. Lord, from my vantage point, it looks like my life is only about pain and only about suffering. Lord, from my vantage point, I think the phrase I used a few weeks ago is, is it feels like I'm being picked on here. It feels like I'm being picked on here. And so I'm going to express to you the pain that's in my bones. See, Jewish people, one of the things that we've learned, I think I've pointed this out to you before, is that the, the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish men, didn't carry forward this idea of manhood, this, this concept of masculinity that's so, so prevalent in, in the West. In the West, we think that masculinity is defined by a stiff upper lip and a strong iron jaw and an unwillingness to show any emotion in the, in the face of pain or difficulty or loss. But in the Jewish culture, you could be like David. You could be a warrior who goes gallantly to the front lines and come back and write poetry about it. 
You could, like Job, be the kind of man who is considered to be the greatest man in all of the East, a man who is upright and avoids evil, a man who is pious and devout in his faith, a man who is good in his business endeavors and his ventures, a man who is well defended on every line, and you could go and you could actually say, this is how I feel, I'm sad about it, it hurts, and I don't like it. That he could process and pour it out. In fact, look at what he says in verse 26. He says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. In other words, Job says, I'm not going to be quiet about what I'm experiencing. I'm not going to be quiet about the pain that I know. I'm not going to be quiet about the hardship and the loss that I've experienced. I'm not going to be quiet about it. I have to express it. A counselor helped me understand it this way. And please, again, forgive me. My pencil is not working, so I'm going to draw with my finger here. But he explained to me that we as humans are limited containers. That God did not make us to be infinite, which means we cannot contain infinite amounts of experiences and knowledges. We can't accumulate a lifetime of hurts and just keep pressing it in. Because here's what most of us do. Most of us as children, we go through stuff and we face it and it's hard, but we push it down. And we press it in. And we're okay. And we manage it because kids are resilient. And we haven't faced that much now. But we have the dad who doesn't ever seem to be happy with us. We have the mom who it seems like is never enough to be able to, to please them. We have the friends that don't seem to accept us. And we hurt and we feel it. But we pack, pack it down and we pretend like it's not there. We go into our adolescent years. And man, that's a weird time, isn't it? And we experience more. But we pack it down. And we pack it down and we press it deep into our, into our heart. And, and we're okay. We're okay because we haven't, we haven't gotten to the threshold yet. We keep pressing down what we're feeling and pressing down what we're losing and pressing down the difficulties that we're facing in our lives. And then come the 20s. And in the 20s, man, there are all kinds of changes that take place. You find out adulthood, not as awesome as you thought it was going to be, don't you? You, you? you find out that mortgages, not as cool as they're made out to be. Car payments, not as great as you expected. Marriage, a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. Parenting, you're a lot tireder than you even thought. You, you remember back when you were like 20 years old and you thought you got tired? You remember that? I mean, like, you, some of y'all are, are, are shaking your head with me. And then, like, one kid comes in, and then two kids, and then if you're like Megan, now, like, three kids comes in, and you're like, I don't even know what it's like not to be tired, right? Like, like tired is the new normal, baby. Like, we just hope to be less tired than we were yesterday. That's our goal now. But you take all the fights with your husband, all the disappointments with yourself. And by the way, as you have kids, as you, have, as you get married, you start reveal, your own selfishness becomes clearer to you, doesn't it? So all the disappointments with yourself, all of the failed goals when you don't graduate from college or when you graduate from college and you don't get the job that you think you deserve, all of that, and we start packing that stuff down. And here's what the counselor said. He said it's about early to mid-30s when we have packed down and packed down and packed down, and man, the container is full. The pitcher has filled the brim with water, and now it starts spilling out. And it makes a mess of everything. It makes a mess of your relationships. It makes a mess of your friendships. 
It makes you, you start feeling anxious all the time and you can't really put your finger on it because it feels nebulous and abstract and arbitrary. All you know is it is not well with my soul. And so much of the unwellness of our souls can be brought back to an unwillingness to pour these things out of us as they come in to allow ourselves to feel the pain truly, to ask the questions honestly, and then to express them clearly. You know what some of you need desperately in your life right now? You need a friend. You need somebody just to go to coffee with and say, look, I know you got a lot going on in your life. I know you got a lot of issues. I I know you got your own. And the last thing you want is my drama. But for the goodness of my soul, can I just, can I just start talking to you about what happened to me? Can I just start telling you about some of the things that I struggled with? One of the things the counselor had me do was go back and, and go through the course of my life. Because here's what you have to do retroactively. You have to go back to those old griefs that haven't been dealt with. And you have to deal with them. You have to face them. Go through a journal and write them as they come into your mind. And, and, art, and, and lay them out as a lament in the way that Job does. So that you can feel the pain and ask the questions and pour out and express the pain. Come to one of your pastors. Come to one of your pastors. We actually care about you. We care about you. I tell people, one of the things I love to tell people when they sit in my office is it matters to me what happens to you. It matters to me. And I'm not alone. I serve with eight of the greatest men I know in my life who will take the time. Men who have went through stuff themselves. Men who have sought counselors themselves. Men who have grieved real and profound losses over the course of their lives that they would love to be able to share that with you. We have women throughout our congregation who make this a part of their weekly ministry to go and to be able to just have coffee with with other ladies in the church that are struggling and they want to be able to care for you. Maybe you should seek out a counselor. I had to. But you have to express the grief. You have to empty the container. There is too much life yet to live. There is too much set before you. And there is too much pain to endure. If we are going to suffer to the glory of God, we must recognize the limitations of the design of God in and of ourselves. So first, if we're going to suffer to the glory of God, we must allow ourselves to grieve. Secondly, you must focus yourself upon hope. You must focus yourself upon hope. So one of the interesting realizations that you come to in ministry, obviously in ministry we deal with some of the, the more difficult seasons of life and we, difficult, we deal a lot with the end of life. And it's not uncommon in ministry to have a husband die of a heart attack suddenly and then a few months later have the wife die of a broken heart. And those are not the same thing, are they? They are not the same thing. That you can have someone who dies of a, gro- of a broken heart and you can have someone else who literally dies of a grieving heart, a heart that is unable to cope with the amount of loss, with the profundity of what they've faced. That is, what I'm trying to get at here is we must move past a place of self-pity. That to, to grieve in a way that brings glory to the Lord, to, to grieve and to fail and to face loss and suffering in a way that won't bring harm and damage long-term to our souls. We, we can't wallow in self-pity. Instead, we have to recognize that even though our grief is real and even though our pain is profound and even though our loss is significant, we are still people of hope. We are still fundamentally people of hope. 
And so even in the midst of these laments and in the, in the midst of these conversation cycles that Job is having as he's going back and forth with his friends, every now and then in the midst of his grief and in the midst of his pain and in the midst of his sorrow, hope breaks through. Hope breaks through. And I think that's what it's supposed to look like in the midst of loss. It's not all hope, all good news, all the time. It's in the middle of darkness, in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of sadness, in the, in the, in the middle of being overwhelmed and finding yourself against insurmountable odds. It's light breaking through the darkness. See, I think when we think of hope, we think of positive thinking. We think the, the, the modern methodology of let's just put some good vibes on it, you know, like let's put some good spins on it. Let's, let's, let's take the bad thing and try to frame it up. And we can even do this in Christian ways, y'all. We can even do this in Christian ways. Well, I know it's all going to be fine. I know there's a big plan. But the truth is, is that our response by trying to put a positive spin on a hard thing and a refusal to call a bad thing bad It's like trying to hide an elephant with a sheet. You know it's there. You know it's there. You're just trying to turn a blind eye to it. You're just trying to pretend like it's not there. Positive thinking is an attempt at self-deception. And we aren't very good at deceiving ourselves because guess what? Yo, we know the truth. We know the pain is there. We know the grief is there. We know the loss is there. And so we can try all day to put that elephant behind a sheep, but doggone it, we know the elephant is there, man. We know the elephant is there. You see, that's not the kind of hope that Job calls us to. Listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 13, it says, this is Job talking, let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. What should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Listen to this, listen to this. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words. Let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Do you hear what he's saying? In the midst of a lament, in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain, He says, though he slay me. Did you expect that to be in a word of hope? See, real hope isn't putting a positive spin on a bad thing. Real hope is clear-eyed. Real hope is honest. Real hope is able to talk about the hardship in your marriage and say the way that he treated me is not okay. The way that my dad treated me is not okay. The way that my life went, I'm not happy about that. I'm not trying to act as though with good vibes, I can overcome it and put this elephant behind a sheet. Job says, though he slay me, though God allow hardship to come into my life. Do you hear that? Do you hear how he's attributing it to the Lord? Though though God allow me to know this kind of pain and this kind of sorrow and this kind of loss, Though God allow me to be afflicted in my health and in my reputation and in all of the things that matter to me, though this is the reality and it is not good and I do not like it, though I am living as though a slain man, I will hope in him. Hope is clear-eyed, but hope is also substantiated. It's substantial. Positive thinking is superficial, right? 
It's putting, it's, it's putting lipstick on a pig. It's, it's trying to make something look better than it actually is. Making yourself feel better about something that you can't feel better about. That's not what real hope does. Real hope tries and seeks out a reality that is even grander and greater than the suffering that you're experiencing. That what real hope is, is it isn't diminishing the pain of right now, and it isn't diminishing the, the struggle of right now and the disappointment of right now. Real hope is looking forward to a hope of greater substance, of greater reality. And for Job, that hope is in the trustworthiness, the character, and the justice of God himself. Job's reputation is being slaughtered. Job is being called to continue repentance, though he has not sinned. And Job's ultimate, vindicate, Job's ultimate hope is that the Lord himself is going to vindicate him. That reality isn't fully what I see. Reality isn't fully what I, what I feel. Reality isn't fully what I've went through. Reality is ultimately in the Lord. And we know that the Lord is sovereign and the Lord is good and the Lord is just and the Lord is trustworthy. And so he says, though, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And so, so can I just invite you to put to death this positive thinking stuff? Put it away. Stop trying to hide the pain of your life behind a sheet. You know it's there, don't you? Like a glimmer of light through the midst of the darkness, you should see a greater reality than your pain. You see, hope is more than positive thinking, and hope is more than right now. What does pain do? What does suffering do? Suffering causes us to be remarkably short-sighted, doesn't it? In fact, what we do is we take, and this leads to so much anxiety in our lives. We take the hardship of right now, we take the pain of right now, we take the difficulty of right now, and we project it forward, assuming that every, everything we experience in the future is going to be defined by what we feel and see and, and know right now. We project what, the pain of the present to the misery of the future, and we assume, we assume this is as good as it's going to get for us. We assume that if it's going to go any direction from here, it's only going to go downhill, right? But the nature of hope, by definition, is to be future-oriented. To be future-oriented. That hope isn't just concerned about right now. Hope is looking down the corridors of your life and seeing something brighter than what you're experiencing right now. Seeing something better than what you're walking through right now. Seeing something that, that allows you something that you can look forward to rather than dread. Some of the most beautiful words in the book of Job get right to this reality in Job chapter 19. Listen to this. This is beautiful. For I know. You hear the certainty of that? The assurance of that. For I know that my Redeemer, he lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold. And not another. My, eye, my eyes faint within me. Do you hear all the future language that he's saying? I shall. I shall my eyes shall, my heart will faint within me. He's, he's looking forward. And what's most profound here in the book of Job, in the old covenant, perhaps the oldest literature in all of the Bible, is he's looking forward to the time that is after death. After my flesh 
has faded. After my life is gone. In other words, my hope may not even be in this life. My hope may not be in the here and now. I may not have children again. I may not have wealth again. I may not have health again. My reputation may not be restored while I'm here on the earth. But here's what I know. Though I may die, though my life may pass, though my reputation may be tainted, my Redeemer, He's alive. He's alive. And because He's alive, that reality is greater, is greater than my present. My future and the life of my Redeemer is substantiated so that I can look forward through the darkness of poor health, through the darkness of a bad reputation, through the darkness of the loss and grief of my children, through the darkness of the shame from my wife. I can look forward to that and I can see light cutting through the dark because my Redeemer's alive. For us who are in Christ, does that not sound like what I read from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to open up the service? Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Here's what he says. That we, in a way that is even greater than Job, could have begun to comprehend. We know that our Redeemer is alive. Our Redeemer came and he was born into the world. Our Redeemer lived a perfect life. Our Redeemer walked the face of the earth and was obedient where Adam had failed. Our Redeemer walked the face of the earth and tempted and yet sustained where we give in and sin. Our Redeemer walked and lived sinlessly. Our Redeemer was crucified and placed in the ground and it appeared as though hope was gone. But our Redeemer, our Redeemer was raised and our Redeemer, he is alive. So our hope... It's not just in what we know, it's in who we know. Our hope, our future, it is not defined by the pain that we know in the here and now. The grief of our hearts may not be fully resolved this side of heaven. Our careers may not be reestablished. Our kids may not reconcile with us. But here's what we know. We know what the future holds. We know because our Redeemer is alive. Our hope is not built on just a truth. Our hope is built on a person, and that person is alive. Do you have hope? Do you have hope? Do you have the hope of the grace that has been given to you through Christ? Have you come and placed all of your confidence and all of your faith in the reality that, that Christ himself is the, is the sovereign reigning over the earth who has accomplished and given as a first fruits of your resurrection his own resurrection? Focus yourself on hope. And finally, remind yourself to endure. Remind yourself to endure. If, if you look here in Job chapter 23... What you actually see is all of these steps, or all of these steps are, are, are put together. And you can see where he lands, okay? So look at verse 8 9. Behold, I go forward, and he is not there. That's the Lord. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, do you see what he's saying? I'm looking for God everywhere, but I can't find him. I want God more than anything, but he seems to be silent. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking the Lord, but the Lord, he isn't there. It appears as though I'm hidden. It's an expression of grief, isn't it? It gets back to the, to the feeling, to the questioning, to the expressing. But then look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, and I shall come out as gold. 
How is gold refined? How is gold purified? It's purified through the fire, isn't it? How is it that our character is refined? How is it that we are sanctified in this life? How is it that we are turned more and more into the image of those of, of the one who Christ has called for us to be? It is through the fires of life and the griefs of life and the hardships of life and the sorrows of life. And so here, in spite of his grief, hope is breaking through and Job is actually able to say, I know, even though I can't hear him and even though I don't see him and even though I don't even perceive him, I know that he knows where I am and that he is at work in me to refine me as gold in the fire. So, so, verse 11 and 12. So behold, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept the way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. So I've resolved I'm going to endure. I've resolved that I'm going to stand firm. I've resolved that I'm going to press on. I grieve, yes. I have hope, though. And because I have hope, in light of my grief, I can remind, and I use the word remind so specifically, because I think we hear this and we think grit our teeth and go. But I think what we see in Job is something more gentle than that, something more pastoral than that, something kinder than that, that we remind ourselves. We don't condemn ourselves or shame ourselves or guilt ourselves, we remind ourselves this isn't over. This isn't, hope isn't dead. Hope is still breaking through the dark. But we think of, I think we typically think of grief like this. If we think of, we have the, the allowing ourselves to grieve, well, that's a big G. Then we have the hope and then we have Endure. In other words, we think of grief in terms of being linear. And because it's linear, the way that we understand it is once I grieve, once I feel it, once I ask the questions, once I express it, then it's over. Now it's just about hope in my life. And so now that it's just about hope, now I can endure. That is this linear experience. That's not reality. That it's more like this, right? That you have grief, you have hope. And you have endurance. That grief isn't linear. Grief is cyclical. And you see this in the context of Job. And I think this is so important because you have to have the right expectations. If you don't have the right expectations, you end up in despair. You end up feeling as though you're the person that's abnormal. You're the person without belief. But if you see in the larger context of, of Job chapter 13, where he says, though he slay me, my hope is in him. Or Job 19, where he says, this I know that my redeemer lives. If you see and you zoom out and see the broader chapter, what you see is he's dealing with some hard stuff before that and after that. That his heart falls into despair. He feels the pain strongly again. He begins to ask the questions again. And so time and again, he's bringing himself through the cycle, cycling through pain, cycling through anger, cycling through frustration, back to hope, back to I'm going to press on, back to grief. C.S. Lewis, he talks about this. He wrote a book, uh, detailing just the grief that he experienced over the, li- the loss of his life. And this is what he said. Tonight, all the hells of young grief have opened again. The mad words, the bitter resentment, the fluttering in the stomach, the nightmare unreality, the wallowed in tears. For in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. I am, am I going in circles? Or dare I hope? 
I'm on a spiral. But if a spiral, am I going up or down it? My guess is, is that if you've experienced real grief and loss in your life, you can identify with what C.S. Lewis is saying. That grief doesn't happen in a line, and it doesn't mean that you're a person of poor faith if you cycle back to questions and pain and anger only to bring yourself to hope once again. But that the goal, if we want to suffer in a way that ultimately brings glory to God, is to continue building and magnifying the hope in our lives so that over time, the hope overtakes the grief. So that over time, we're able to see that the hope is bigger and grander and more beautiful than our grief is painful and lasting. My favorite show right now, I guess, is the the show Alone. I don't know if any of you have have watched it. But basically, they take 10 people that are supposed to be survival experts. And they drop drop them off in some place like the Arctic with hardly any provisions and no other help with some camera gear. And they just say, whoever stays the longest, you get a half million dollars, Okay. I'm into that kind of thing. That's just, that's, that's my jam. My favorite is always like, there was this one guy, he can't, and, and they show him talking on the way out, and he's hyping himself up. He's like a Navy SEAL and got all this experience, and he's talking about, and he's not even there till dark, and he hears this, line, this uh, cougar make a roar, and he's out. He's out before dark on the first night. I love that. But over enough time, what happens on the show is basically your fire becomes your full-time job. That it's all about sustaining the fire keeping the fire going, cutting the wood for the fire, making sure the fire doesn't get snowed on or rained on, making sure the fire is protected because the fire, the fire is the essence of your survival. That's what hope is in the Christian life. That's what hope is in the midst of grief and suffering and loss. That if we're going to, we're going to suffer to the glory of God, what we have to do is fan the flame of hope. Fan the flame by coming to the word of God day in and day out by faith, even though it feels like we're getting nothing from it. Coming to the church to hear the other Christians sing when you feel like you don't have a voice to sing at all. Going and and meeting with your small group so that they can invest in your life and pour into you so that you can be reminded that you're not by yourself. Week in, week out, Fanning the flame of hope so that ultimately you don't survive through your grief, but you learn to flourish in a life, in a world filled with brokenness. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.